in a couple of weeks, when I'm back from vacation, we're going to uh, shift gears a little bit, only slightly. We're going to stay in the Old Testament, but we're going to spend our evenings in the Old Testament in kind of a survey uh, format, looking through the Old Testament, trying to gather the sweep of what it's all about, the sweep of, of what's happening throughout the Old Testament. The Old Testament, of course, was Jesus' Bible. It was the Bible of the New Testament believers. When they talk about the Bible in the New Testament, that's what they're referring to. But most importantly, Jesus tells us the Old Testament speaks of him. It points to him. It helps us understand him and understand a relationship with him. And so we're going to spend some time doing that, and there will be some other helps on Facebook and things like that, introductions to the various uh, books of the Old Testament as we go through, and we're going to spend the next year doing that. So join us in doing that, whether it's here in the sanctuary, uh, whether it's from home streaming or listening to CDs or even reading uh, Monday morning, the, the sermon online. Uh, we look forward to spending some time in the Old Testament and see how it points to Jesus. But we're going to conclude our look at the Psalms with Psalm 2. Now, we began the summer looking at Psalm 1, and that's a logical place to begin. And in that Psalm, we looked at two ways of life. The righteous person who follows God's Torah, God's law, his teaching in Scripture, and those who take their lead from the world and the world's value systems and the peer pressure that comes from the world. So the book of Psalms begins then with a call to, to the right way of life versus the wrong way of life for an individual. But as we noted at that time, there's good evidence that Psalms 1 and 2 may have actually been one psalm, or at least written, meant to be read back to back. And as Psalm 1 gives way to Psalm 2, we move from the way of the individual to see how the individual is influ influenced by the way of the world. And we already get a glimpse of that in Psalm 1, but it kind of comes to a head when we see the way of the world often reflected in this psalm and God's response to it. Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let's break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You'll break them with a rod of iron. You'll dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the sun or he will be angry and your way will lead you to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
Would you join me in prayer? Father God, as we come before you from a world that seems at times to simply be out of control, I pray that you would help us to see from this psalm and and from our knowledge of you that you are in control. And help us to believe that and live that way in the coming week. For Jesus' sake, amen. From medieval times, jesters were employed by noblemen to entertain themselves and their guests at parties. Then by the 17th century, court jesters, otherwise known as licensed fools, were on the payroll of most palaces. Their duty was to improve the mood of the king, make him laugh. But it was a rather tenuous position. If the king didn't laugh his head off, you might just lose yours. Well, Psalm 2 also talks about some fools making the king laugh. But they're not paid to make him laugh. In fact, he says they will pay. If the licensed fool was in a dangerous position, the fools of this psalm are walking an even thinner line. And what's more, this king is the god of the universe. It doesn't take much of an eye to look around and see that there are plenty of fools today causing God laughter, derisive laughter, thundering from his heavenly throne. The psalm is shaped by a series of four speakers, it seems. The narrator introduces the rebellious rulers of the earth, in the first three verses. Then God the Father, the world's true king, reacts to them in verses 4 through 6. Then we hear the anointed, God's son, the Messiah, being decreed as the world's leader and what he's going to do. And then finally it ends with the narrator again, perhaps led by the Holy Spirit, as he witnesses to the wise way to live for the rulers of this earth and for us, the wise way to respond to God. So I want to look at those four aspects or those four voices in this psalm for a few moments. The psalm begins with a rhetorical question, why? Why do the nations conspire? Why do the peoples plot in vain? Why do the kings of the earth rise up and band together against the Lord and against his anointed one? Why? It sets the tone of astonishment from the very beginning. Why such foolishness? Now, in the ancient Near East, when a ruler of one of the great empires died, the subject nations saw the opportunity to quickly burst the chains of slavery before the new king was established, or enemy nations saw an opportunity to to wedge in in, and wage battle perhaps against that nation before their king was established. Perhaps there was a situation like this in Israel at the time. Perhaps this is the setting for this psalm. Enemies from within or from without trying to break with this new king. 
But God the king, for Israel was a theocracy, remember, ruled by God. God the king makes it clear. Rebellion against God's chosen king was tantamount to rebellion against God himself. Now, even if there was a situation like this being addressed, there's a bigger issue here. The larger issue is simply rebellion against God. And especially if it's connected with Psalm 1, this this psalm is still dealing with the wise way to live and the foolish way to live. And it's real folly, says the psalmist, to make enemies with God. There's also a question of the identity of the king in this passage. This may very well be dealing with the situation in King David's day. Many believe it's David's coronation ceremony. And yet, if any psalm is messianic, that is, speaks of the coming Messiah, it's this one. In fact, it uses the very word Messiah, Mashiach in the Hebrew, but translated often anointed or anointed one. And not only that, this is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. So it ultimately speaks, if it may start by speaking about David, it ultimately speaks of the rebellion of the world's leaders against the the Messiah to come, Jesus. In fact, in Acts 4, verses 24 through 27, the disciples make it very clear that this is about Jesus. They actually quote the first two verses and then tie it directly to specific events of their day. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed one, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They said, this this psalm is being fulfilled in our day with those odd bedfellows of of Herod and Pontius Pilate, of the the Jewish leaders, probably the the priests in particular, and, and the Romans. But this psalm also speaks beyond the first century. James Boyce calls this psalm an expression of the human heart against God. An expression of the human heart against God. How many today aren't trying to break the chains and throw off the shackles of God's rule over and his will for our lives? Psalm 2 is a warning that in every age, people try to replace God's anointed one on the throne with something else, with someone else, and usually with themselves. Is that ever true of us? Do we ever play the fool by, by thinking that our way is better than God's way? That we would be better off ruling the throne of our own lives? Are we willing, like many people, I think, many Christians, to want Jesus as our Savior, but not really want him as our Lord? We want him to save us, but we don't necessarily want him to boss us around. 
In what ways are we, through our plans, our decisions, our lifestyle, our actions, trying to put ourselves on the throne? Well, at least the court jesters would peek out of the corner of their eye to gauge the king's reaction to see if heads would roll. But here the king has to get their attention. And what we find is that the flurry of the world's defiance to God is, is laughed out of court. They've made a mockery of God and his Messiah, and he mocks them in return with a two-sided laughter, a laughter of hilarity, but also a laughter of anger. You see, God does not tremble at the world's rulers. God does not tremble at the world's rulers. But, as one commentator puts it, he laughs at these great imbeciles. And it's a laughter of derision. He scoffs at them. This is what human attempts to throw off God's rule deserve. James Boyce says it's understandable that sinners should want to reject God's rule. That's what sin is. A repudiation of God's rule in favor of one's own rule. But the hilarity lasts only so long, and then God's laughter turns to a sharp rebuke. How dare you? How dare you? I have established my king. I think this, this laughter is the kind of laughter that must have been thundering from heaven when Karl Marx called religion the opiate of the people. Or when the movement of the, the 60s and 70s said, God is dead. Every age has heard the derisive laughter of heaven at the arrogance of mankind. C.H. Spurgeon pointed out that in the late 3rd and early 4th centuries, the emperor Diocletian, a great enemy of Christianity, struck a medal which bore the inscription, the name of Christianity being extinguished. As he extended his empire to Spain, he erected two monuments, proclaiming Diocletian, Jovian, Maximian, Herculeus, Assyrius, Augusti, for having extended the Roman Empire in the east and the west, and for having extinguished the name of Christians who brought the Republic to ruin. And the other monument said, Diocletian, Jovian, Maximian, Herculeus, Assyrius, Augusti, for having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ and for having extended the worship of the gods. But Diocletian had not abolished Christianity. On the contrary, at the time, Christianity was growing stronger than ever. And eventually, it triumphed over Caesar's throne. It outlasted the Roman Empire. There is a certain comfort in God's laughter for Christians. It's a reminder that in the face of the folly of, of governments and dictators and politicians and whoever might want to think they're in control, God is really in control. The question is, which side of the laughter are we on? Can we take comfort in God's laughter because we hold on to Him? Or should we be running for cover 
because we're trying to rule our own lives. On verses 7 through 9, then, a royal decree follows the laughter, a promise of support and stability for the anointed king, David perhaps, but ultimately Jesus the Messiah. For while some say this is about David, and it probably was in its original context, New Testament Scripture has always treated Psalm 2 as about Jesus. The author of Hebrews quotes verse 7 twice in referring to Jesus. But we actually hear an echo of this psalm combined with a couple of other Scripture passages at Jesus' baptism and at his transfiguration when the Father from heaven affirms on both occasions, this is my Son. Today you are my Son. I have begotten you. With him I am well pleased. There's also, of course, the future sense to this. I will make the nations your inheritance. You will break them. Hebrews 2 quotes uh, the psalm we started with, Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6, and actually reads in there uh, that it's about Jesus at that point and about the Father placing everything under Jesus' feet. But he notes that at present that's not happening completely. We don't see everything subject to him. That is still to come. Jesus is Lord, but there are still many like the, the fools of the, this psalm, the rulers who resist him. And then the Father promises him an iron scepter. An iron scepter was a symbol of, of rule, but also of power. I'm reminded of President Theodore Roosevelt, who said famously, speak softly but carry a big stick. Messiah's big stick will smash his enemies like brittle pottery. And then, in fact, that verse is actually quoted a couple of times to refer to Jesus in the book of Revelation and what Jesus will do. So what will the results of that iron scepter look like? One Christian historian, William Plummer, surmised a little bit in connection with the Roman Empire. He said, of 30 Roman emperors, governors of provinces, and others in high office who distinguished themselves by their zeal and bitterness in persecuting the early Christians, one became specially or speedily deranged deranged after some atrocious cruelty. One was slain by his own son. One became blind. The eyes of one started out of his head. One was drowned. One was strangled. One died in miserable captivity. One fell dead in a manner that will not bear recital. One died of so loathsome a disease that several of his physicians were put to death because they could not abide the stench that filled his room. Two committed suicide, a third attempted it but had to call for help to finish the work. Five were assassinated by their own people or servants. Five others died the most miserable and excruciating death, several of them having untold complication of diseases. And eight were killed in battle or after being taken prisoners. I count that up, that's actually 30. But then he says, among those was Julian the Apostate. 
in the days of his prosperity, he is said to have pointed his dagger to heaven, defying the Son of God he commonly called the Galilean. But when he was wounded in battle, he saw that all was over with him, and he gathered up his clotted blood and threw it in the air, exclaiming, Thou hast conquered, O thou Galilean. There's a lot of people that are going to find that out someday. Thou hast conquered, O thou Galilean. Our job is not to rebel. Our job is to simply carry the message of God's decree and of Christ's rule to our world. To proclaim to our world the rule of King Jesus. The narrator then issues words of warning and witness to those who have not yet bowed the knee to King Jesus. Harry Ironside suggests that this is the voice of the Holy Spirit, whose role it is to to draw us to Jesus. What does he say? First, be wise. Get smart, wisen up. Don't be fools, but get your act together before it's too late, because an iron scepter beats a clay jar any time. Second, serve the Lord. Serve the Lord with both fear and joy. That is, a joy mixed with awe and reverence. Remember who you're dealing with, the Lord of the universe. And then kiss the Son. That was an act of obedience and submission to the King. And whether or not one believes in Jesus as Lord, Paul reminds us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess who he is. One day, he comes as judge, which means wrath and destruction for some. And yet, says the psalmist, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Do we need the warning today? Are we putting ourselves in the throne of, of, that belongs to Jesus Christ, the throne of our lives? Or can we take comfort in the blessedness that awaits those who take refuge in him? As James Boyce reminds us, the rulers of the world rage against Christ, but why should you? The hands he holds forth for you to kiss are the hands that were pierced by nails when he was crucified in your place. That is, our judge is our Savior. The king of heaven will have the last laugh. Which side of the laughter will we be on? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are king. We thank you that you have established Jesus as the king of this world. We have to admit, Lord, sometimes it doesn't seem like there's much control going on in our world. And yet we have faith in you. We have faith that you are going to bring everything to its proper conclusion. A conclusion that then just opens the way into eternity. We thank you for those promises. Help us to trust in them. Whatever comes our way this coming week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's praise the, the name of Jesus. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let's stand and sing the four stanzas. <laughs>